When police are investigating a horrifying crime, they instead uncover a sickening conspiracy. And then we travel to Arizona to meet a pair of rock collectors who travel out into the wilderness looking for the shiniest of rocks. Instead, they come face to face with a mind-bending experiment that will end their lives today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Garbiner. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. We are having a short week this week, only three episodes, because I just got back from the McMinimins UFO Fest in McMinnville, Oregon. I'm telling you guys, it was a blast. We're going to do it again next year. We brought out our haunted museum. We stood out there. We were handing out stickers designed by Adam Carter. We just had a blast. It really was so fun. So we're going again next year. And some of you guys came out to visit me. That was really awesome. You know, I was hoping. I was hoping. And you did not let me down. So you guys are going to be the pilots this week. First off, everyone give a round of applause for today's captain, today's pilot. We're going to give it up for Joel from Arizona. Woohoo! Joel's walking in. Yeah, giving him high fives and stuff while we're clapping. We have quantum hands. We can do everything at once. And I got to say this, Joel, I forgot to, <laughs> he had his girlfriend there, maybe his wife. I forgot to write her name down, but she's there too. She's equally important. But Joel, you're going to be our captain or pilot this episode. If you guys can't meet me in real life, that's fine too. Just help spread the word about this show. That really, really helps out a lot. Now, Joel, we're going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed all the way out to Mill Plain, Washington. It's October 30th, 2021. The day before the spookiest day of the year. Halloween. (laughs) In case you're bad at math or don't have a calendar. It's the day before Halloween and kids are already picking out their costumes. I'm going as Baby Yoda, says one kid. Well, I'm going as Snuffleupagus, says another kid who's apparently as big as a mammoth. But while they're deciding whether or not to be Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees or Paw Patrol, Pet Man, whatever those dogs are called... While everyone's trying to pick their costumes, nobody realizes there's a real monster in town. He has a costume. This monster has a costume. It's an Arby's uniform. This man works at Arby's restaurants. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast know Arby's, they're the grossest fast food restaurant out there. They really are. Like, just even, I like. I feel like I'm some sort of, like, having these PTSD flashbacks when I mention Arby's. I can taste that sauce. I can taste it. I can still taste that tangy sauce rolling down the back of my throat. I haven't had Arby's in 20 years. But if you gave me a taste test of sauces, I'll totally do that taste test, by the way. If you'd like to meet me and have different sauces for me to taste, yummy. But um, when I got to the Arby's one, I take my blindfold off and go, You, sir, are no friend of mine. I'm taking the rest of these sauces and leaving. Arby's is disgusting. Arby's is a disgusting fast food restaurant. And I hate to say things like I told you so, but this story proves that <laughs> this, this story that happened at this one Arby's proves that they're all disgusting. On October 30th, 2021, there is a manager at a Arby's in Mill Plain, Washington, named Stephen S. Sharp. He's a 29-year-old dude. 
And while he's watching all these people getting ready for Halloween, he walks through Walmart and the costumes are quickly disappearing from the shelves. And he's like, you know what? All of these trick-or-treaters are constantly saying they want a trick or treat. Well, what if I gave them a trick in their treat? He's all talking. He's talking out loud at the Walmart. People are like, uh, stay away from that guy. He's obviously a lunatic and going to do something grotesque. Stephen Sharp's plan is this. I don't know if he actually came up with this idea on the night before Halloween. Of the trickiest treat ever. Back at the Arby's restaurant, he was the only one there. There was a bag of milkshake mix. I guess it's like some sort of powder that they put in there. It's this milkshake mix. And he opened this bag up and he urinated in it. <laughs> Jason, I didn't need the sound effect. I know what a human urine's like. He urinates in this bag of milkshake mix. This is actually, you'll see a lot of headlines for this. Some of you guys may have read this, but this is just the tip of the story. That is just the tip. This is out and about in the news cycle. You'll see headlines like, Fired Arby's manager admitted to urinating at least twice in a milkshake mix. It would have gone into the machine, and the police looked at the receipts. Between October 30th and October 31st, there was one root beer float sold. And 30 to 40 milkshakes. Now, that's the headline. That's the headline you'll see. But when you read the articles, it's far more disturbing. So you see the headline. You see these headlines. And the big question you have is, how did they figure this out? Did he get ratted out by someone? Did someone go, oh, I have a, I've had a Arby's milkshake a day since the end of World War II. I know what they taste like. This one tasted like human urine. No. The way that they uncovered this is incredibly disturbing. This is insane. What happened was the local police got a tip that someone in Mill Plain was trading and collecting child pornography, child sexual abuse images. And they figured out who it was. It was this guy named Stephen Sharp at the local Arby's. So when they arrest him, they get his phone and they start going through it. And of course, they find what they're looking for, a bunch of child porn. And then they came across the video of him urinating in a bag. And these are veteran police officers saying all sorts of horrible stuff, right? But this one, they're like, what in the world is this? Like, what? This, this, is, this is so weird. It's surrounded by all of this disgusting child porn. Here's a video of a guy peeing in a bag. So they asked him. They asked him, hey, what's this video of, of the peeing in the bag? So that's how they found this guy. He was being charged with child pornography. And I didn't know this. I didn't know this. So he was being charged with possession of child pornography, which right there, he's looking at like 20 years per image or whatever it is, five years per image, and he has a bunch of it. Whatever. Doesn't matter. He deserves the jail time. Him peeing in the bag is food tampering. That's against the law, luckily. Right? Otherwise, people would be peeing in food all the time. But I didn't know this. During the interview, when the police were like, why did you pee in the bag? He says, oh, because it got me off. Like, I got sexual enjoyment from peeing into this powder. So now he's not just charged with food tampering. It's, a new, it's another sex crime charge. If you do something sexy, and it's not saying, I'm saying that this is sexy, but if you do something for sexual reasons, that's different. So if you were robbing a bank, everyone get down, give me all your money, and you had like a big old boner, 
That's, that's two charges. You're going to get charged with robbing the bank, and you're going to get charged with having sexual gratification during it or something like that, which would be super awkward. Like, if you robbed a bank, and there's, like, a really hot bank teller there, and you're like, oh, don't look at her. Don't look at her. Don't, ma'am, go into the back room, but don't hit the silent alarm. I can't look at you. I don't want to get a second I don't want to get a second charge as the security guard is choking on his own blood. I don't want to get charged with a sex crime. Um, yeah, that's it. he got a new charge. Now, here's the thing. I guarantee this was not his first rodeo. Guarantee it. I mean, he got caught with the videos of him peeing in the bag. But remember, this guy was a manager here. He worked his way up. I'm sure he did this a ton of times and never videotaped it. I don't know much about per- the way perverts think, but I I don't know. Would a pervert just go, hmm, I'm bored I'm going to pee in a bag of... (laughs) Obviously, this guy did, right? But what I'm saying is he probably did it a bunch of times, and then he goes, you know what? I have such fond memories of peeing in that milkshake mix. I'm going to videotape it this time so I can enjoy it at home. Like, I bet you he's done this a lot. And now that he knows he'll he'll get a separate sex crime charge for every time he did something then he's just not going to say anything. There could be hundreds. There could be thousands of milkshakes out there. One day he takes a trip to corporate office. They're like, Stephen, really like the cut of your jib. Why don't you come down to corporate office and see what it's all about? And he's like walking through the milkshake mix room where they're making the powder. He's like, ha ha ha. So it could be like the end of cabin fever where that water truck was driving down the road and the water was full of flesh-eating bacteria. That could be, there could be semi-trucks of Arby's milkshake powder mix driving through your city right now. Insane, right? It's one of those stories, you see the headlines, and it sounds gross, and then you dig into the story, and it's even worse. A child pornographer peed in people's milkshakes. I would, there's a lot of people I wouldn't want to pee in my milk. I don't want to pee in any of my milkshakes. If I had to pick between milkshakes and, like, this one, a serial killer peed in this one, a bank robber peed in this one, and a child, a child pornographer peed in this one. I I know which one I'm not choosing. Gross. Like, that's even worse. And the fact that he got off on it. Imagine him just being at work that day and seeing people come up and they're like, one milkshake. You know what? It's Halloween. I'll have three milkshakes. And he's like, oh, yeah. I don't want to be on the counter. Okay, I'm done. I'm done with that segment. I'm done. Joel from Arizona, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Carpenter Copter. You and your lovely lady friend can take us up and out of this Arby's. We're leaving it behind, although Stephen Sharp may become a reoccurring character. Let's leave behind Washington. We're headed all the way out to the Arizona desert. The year is 1938. We're in this unnamed Arizona town. It's near a train station. And there's this train headed towards town. And on this train is a young man named Steve Brody. Now, Steve Brody's coming out to the area because he loves collecting rocks. It's a passion of his. He just walks around and goes, whoa, I've never seen a rock like that before. And he picks it up, looks at it. And puts it in his pocket. Maybe a backpack. It doesn't doesn't say exactly what he used to collect them. But somehow he collected these rocks. And he had a buddy of his. He doesn't give a name for his buddy. There's some interesting details to the story. We'll get to in the end. But he doesn't give a name to his buddy. We'll call him Jake. So Stephen and Jake are on this train. Headed to this unnamed Arizona town. And when they get out. They begin to quickly figure out their plans. Where they're going to go collect these rocks. 
where they're going to stay, stuff like that. Stuff <laughs> that they probably should have figured out before they got there. They find out there's no hotels or no rocks. It's underwater. No, they get out there. And they start talking, oh, you know what? I saw a really cool place as we were coming into town on that train. There's that bluff over yonder, Stephen says. I think we should go over there. And, and Jake agrees. Jake goes, yeah, let's go after that bluff. I'm sure there's tons of rocks down there. I mean, what is a bluff already but a giant rock? But the townspeople get word of these two strangers in their territory. And they don't, they don't, they don't care, right? It's a normal town. They're not a bunch of wrong-turn mutants. But they do warn the young men, hey, yeah, we overheard you guys wanted to go to the bluff. Don't go to the bluff. A lot of people have gone missing out there, even locals, even people who know the area. They've gone out to the bluff. They've never come back. But Steve and Jake kind of just figure they're local superstitions, right? There's what could possibly go wrong out in the middle. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong in the middle of the Arizona desert? So they go out there against the wishes of the townspeople. They go out there and they're out at the base of the bluff. And they're not there for that long, really. They just got there. They're kind of looking around. When out of the shadows surrounding the base of the bluff, a man steps out wearing a solid black cloak and a black hood. This man stepped out of the shadows, totally cloaked. Stephen could not describe what this guy's face looked like. But it's not really what he was worried about. The face doesn't care if he was handsome or not. The dude stepped out of nowhere, right? He stepped out of some sort of void. And then another cloaked figure stepped out of another nearby shadow. And at this point, Steve and Jake are like, dude, we got to get out of here. So they start to run, and they get maybe a couple feet when all of a sudden, one of the men in the cloaks seemed to be holding some sort of weapon. And a beam, a beam about as wide as a pencil, shot out of this and struck Jake in the back. And when that beam struck Jake, Stephen said that his friend fell over and laid on the ground completely motionless. The air was thick with the smell of scorched skin. Stephen sees his friend laying motionless on the ground and he stops. Whether he stopped because he didn't want to leave his buddy behind, or he knew there was no way he could outrun these guys over this vast expanse of desert, he comes to a stop, and these two cloaked figures walk up to him, and they put something on his head. He said it was basically just like this device that had these two metal discs that fitted over his temples. And once that device is securely around his head, he passes out. The next thing he knows, he's regaining consciousness, and he's somewhere in the dark. He passes out again, and when he comes to, he's still in that same dark place, but he realizes he must be underground somewhere. He blacks out again. He comes to, he realizes he's not just in a hole underground, he's in a cell. He can actually see bars. Passes out again. What happens is he's constantly coming to for brief periods of time. And each time he's able to take in a little bit more information. He realizes after multiple times of regaining consciousness and passing back out, he's somewhere underground, either in a dungeon, like a literal like medieval dungeon or a cave system. There's bars separating him from a like chamber area, a place that he could leave this cell. He's not alone. 
there's other humans in this cell, and they are all in this catatonic state. They seem completely brainwashed. And he starts to think, is that what I'm like when I'm unconscious? Because he keeps getting knocked out. And what he realizes is that every time he regains consciousness, one of these cloaked figures walks up and jolts him with some sort of device, and he passes back out. So whenever he's able to start to become aware, it's cut short. He keeps waking up, though, and he sees these humans just standing there. He's put back under. He can't even formulate a rescue plan. He has no idea what's going on. Eventually, he is awake. At the same time, someone else is awake. A young girl. And she tells him we're being held captive. These men in the cloaks, they're known as the Dero. That's all the information she has as well. Maybe she also was able to piece that together from multiple awakenings and then getting knocked out and awakenings and getting knocked out. Until one day, he regains consciousness and he's standing in the outdoors. Get your french fries here. French fries. And he's like, oh, I'm so hungry. Did someone say French race? He wakes up. He's actually standing in New York City. He's standing in Times Square, watching these old cars drive by. You know the world-famous New York French fried vendors? Best French fries in the world. He's standing in New York City. He has no idea how he got here. The last thing he really knew was he was outside of that bluff in Arizona. And he begins walking through the street, kind of unsteady. He doesn't know where to go or or what to do. And he catches a reflection of himself. He has a beard, which he never had before, and long hair. So he knows there's been a passage of time, definite passage of time he has no memory of. He goes to a newspaper stand and he looks at the date on the newspaper. Two years have passed since he was standing in that Arizona desert. Steve made his way back to Arizona. Apparently, that's where he lived. This is really interesting because we have a lot of information and not a lot of information at the same time. Apparently, he didn't live in that region of Arizona where he went rock hunting, but he did live in Arizona. He makes his way back to the town he was originally from. He never saw his friend again. He never saw his friend in the cell. He never mentions his friend again after this. He goes back to the town that he came from, and he kept his mouth shut. Apparently, he didn't have any family. No one was really looking for him. He didn't tell anyone this story until somebody, a friend of his, was visiting him. A couple years later, was visiting him, and this friend had a copy of the Amazing Stories magazine with him, like sticking out of his back pocket, which was a fictional science fiction magazine. And on this issue, they talked about Inner Earth. They talked about this idea that there's an advanced civilization underneath the surface of the planet. And when Steven saw that issue, he started going, Darrow, Darrow, and he like freaked out. His friend's like, dude, whoa, what is going on? He was able to calm Steven down, and Steven was like, I've never told anyone this, but I'm going to tell you this story right now. And told the story that I just told you. And this story apparently was first recounted in a book in 1967 that was published in 1967 called The Shaver Mystery in Inner Earth. It was specifically talking about a researcher named Richard Shaver, who I believe we've talked about on this show before, Richard Shaver, who believed in the Inner Earth philosophy. So he didn't come out and voluntarily tell this story. 
He saw a magazine cover and freaked him out, and he told his friend this story. And as proof that he could show, because he wouldn't have a lot, right? He wouldn't be like, and hey, look at my beard. <laughs> he can grow a beard at any time. Apparently, this friend had this conversation with him back in the 40s, and it was in 1967 when it was published. So he couldn't be like, look at my beard, look at my long hair. Anyone can grow it in the time. He did have two silver dollar-sized scars behind his ears. And he says, this is where... They attached the device to me because the first one was attached to his temples. This one was behind his ears. This must have been a device they attached to him during his imprisonment. But he had that. He had those scars. He had those burn marks. But he never told his friend what town it took place in. He never told his new friend the name of his old friend. He goes, I just don't want to even talk about it, but I'm telling you the story right now. And he said, don't ever tell anyone this story. I'm telling you, <laughs> now we're recording it on a podcast. He told his friend, please don't tell anyone this story. Everyone will think I'm a lunatic. But it happened. It totally happened. The reason why the friend felt comfortable telling the story was because eventually Steve went missing himself. Stephen was last seen riding on a train in Arizona. And another man who knew Steve saw him and was like, hey, Steve, what's up? And Steve didn't respond. He was just staring out the train window. The train was chugga-chugging down the tracks. And this guy knew Steve, and he thought that seemed out of character. He seemed drunk. He goes, he seemed like to be in some sort of stupor. He was just staring out the window, and I even put my hand on his shoulder and was like, Hey, Steve, are you okay? Still wouldn't respond. Still was staring out the window. This man said the train came to a stop, and I got off to use the restroom. And when I came back, Steve was gone. And I figured he must have gotten off on that stop. But I was a little worried for him, right? You know, I'd never seen him like that before. But uh, I just never saw him again after that. Didn't get back on the train, and I did, and the train took off. I imagine he went somewhere. But the hypothesis that you'll see pop up in a lot of these stories is he was under their mind control again. He got free, and he said, he goes, I don't know if I escaped or what. I don't know how I got out. I was just in New York City all of a sudden. Did they call him back home? Did they finally reconnect the mental control over him and he was in that stupor like he had seen all those other people just standing there like mindless zombies? Did they finally get him again and control him to get on the train, to head out there, and to walk out into the Arizona wasteland to rejoin them underground? It's an interesting story, but I want to wrap the episode up like this. What I thought was really interesting about <laughs> sort of being kidnapped and being taken prisoner by inner earth creatures with laser guns is the fact that they dropped him off in New York City. And I, as I was reading this, I thought, what if that's why there's a bunch of crazy homeless people in major cities? If you had to drop off somebody who is going to weave a tale no one will believe, you would drop him off in a major city. If you had a town of a thousand people and some dude just showed up in the middle of town and he's like, they took me, they took me, they took me away, they got all these other prisoners, help me, uh, what day is it, what day is it, Tuesday, what year, they're like 1940, sir. That would make the news, right? <laughs> lunatic, bearded lunatic, shakes mayor, asks date. They would make the news, right? And people, the local police would come out and they'd throw him in the drunk tank. And he's like, I'm not drunk, I'm telling you. 
They're underneath our feet. They're under the ground. And then, you know what I mean? Like, it would be more noticeable. I'm not saying they would believe him. Like, I'm not saying they believe him. I'm not saying they're like, he's our new mayor. <laughs> we'll make crazy beard guy the new leader of our town. I'm not saying they'd believe him, but it would stand out more. If you took him back to that Arizona town, if that guy came wandering in and it's like, you're right, don't go out to the bluff. My buddy got totally blown up, I think. I never saw him again. And they got all these people trapped underground. Then obviously, instead of the town people just going, maybe you might not want to go out there. They'd be telling people, definitely don't go out there. There's people trapped underground. Maybe they'd go and try to rescue them. I think that's aliens' biggest fear, is humans finding out about them. 100%. I think they're terrified of that. I think they're absolutely terrified of that. We would beat them into a pulp. So that would be their worst fear. But if you, so if you took a guy, blathering idiot or not, and dropped him off in a small town, people are more likely at least going to hear him. Maybe not believe him, but they'll hear him. But you drop him off in the middle of New York City, he, he no one would believe him. There, you'd be like, they're they're underground, they're underground, and they're kidnapping people. And right next to you, there's a guy, there's a guy screaming, they're in my skin, they're in my skin, and they're kidnapping my white blood cells. There's so many crazy bearded homeless people in these big cities that it would just get lost in the mess. It would get lost in the chaos. So it actually makes sense that they would drop them off here. I wonder how many of those screaming homeless people you see as you're driving down the road are telling the truth. Not, not that their car broke down and they just need some gas money to get to the next city. Not that. I'm talking about the crazy people screaming at the top of their lungs. Maybe they were just dropped off there by aliens. They're dropped <laughs> After the aliens use you for two years, they're like, here you go, sir. We're going to teleport you. <laughs> We're going to teleport you in front of a Chevron gas station with this cardboard sign that says help, I need gas. Who knows, right? The story is already bizarre enough without adding on are homeless people actually alien abduction victims, which will probably be the name of this episode. But you would have to think that some of them might be. Some of them might be. So the next time you see a guy screaming, next time you see a guy screaming in the top of his lungs outside of a 7-Eleven, you should stop and listen to him. You should go, hmm. You should sit there and listen to him prattle on. Because it's possible, it's possible that he's telling the truth. It's possible that as he's talking about lizard men underground and young people being taken against their wills. Maybe he is privy to the dark secrets of the Dero. It would be the perfect place to hide your mind control victims. Hide them among the drug users and the mentally disabled. Hide them among those who are already invisible and ignored by society. Because when these people come forward, the truth tellers come forward, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs till their voice goes hoarse, spittle, flying out of their mouth, hair, crazy, long, scruffy beard as they're screaming the truth. You'll never hear it. Because it is drowned out by the lies of a million madmen. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.